Let's go back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We came down to verse 9 last time. Which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. If you want to be called a child of God, a way to accomplish that is to be a peacemaker. The word peace is used 429 times in the King James Version of the Bible. So, in the next hour and a half, we're going to examine all 429 of those verses. I think not. If you want to do a personal study, that'll take you some time to go through all that. Uh, There's an awful lot to be gleaned from it. I was going through the concordance on the PC Study Bible this morning, looking at all the different places where the word peace is mentioned. And there were an awful lot of them that I'd like to have turned and read the whole context in, but that would have taken days. But it says here, blessed are the peacemakers. I want to go back to Proverbs 12, set a little bit of background here. Proverbs 12, and here I want verse 20, Proverbs 12, verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. So those who counsel peace, who have come to understand peace, who might have learned it in a position, or in, and in so doing put themselves in a position to be able to counsel others about peace, they will find joy. And we all want to be joyful, don't we? That's a good and wonderful characteristic that God would have us to have. It's one of the fruits of His Spirit, joy. So we should come to find, through the Spirit of God, joy, and peace and joy are connected together. It's hard to be joyful when you're in a state of war, whether it be within yourself, within your family, within your community, or within the world itself. It's hard to have joy under those conditions. Now, let's go back to James 3. James 3. And here, verse 18. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. And James is echoing that in a little bit different context here, saying that, Righteousness is sown in peace. Righteousness will produce peace of those that make peace. Peace is not a natural, normal phenomenon. It is truly a phenomenon when there is peace. It is a rare commodity. We are living in a world today that strives for peace, or says they want peace, and there are wars all over the planet, large and small. They come and they go. They say they want peace. Can they achieve peace? Have they ever been able to achieve peace? Let's look at a couple of scriptures, Isaiah 59. If we're going to be peacemakers, we need to understand some of the elements of this and understand the circumstance in which we find ourselves living on this earth. Isaiah 59, verse 8. 
The way of peace they know not. They don't know how to produce peace. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goes therein shall not know peace. If you live the way of this world, the way of society and the way of its culture, you do not understand what peace is or how to achieve it. Crooked paths do not lead toward peace. So we're living in a world that wants peace, but in a world which the Scripture says clearly has no idea how to achieve it. Jeremiah 6, verse 14. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now the context here is not just for the inhabitants of the world, but it's for God's people, and it's talking about His ministry that only heal the hurt of the people slightly. Perhaps telling them they'll be in the kingdom of God if they stay in their organization or whatever, and it makes them feel a little bit better. But we still have warfare throughout the church. We still have lack of peace. We have confusion and frustration at every turn, it seems. So whether it be the world or whether it be the church, it seems that finding peace is a very elusive thing. Jeremiah 14. And here I want verse 13. Jeremiah 14, 13. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. I just said that, really, uh, where the ministry tries to tell them, If you stay right here, you'll have peace, because we are the Philadelphians, or however they want to put it. Then the Eternal said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke to them. They prophesy to you a false vision and divination and a thing of nothing and the deceit of their heart. They're promising something they simply cannot deliver on because the church itself does not know the way to peace. Why do we have the leaders of various branches of God's church today instructing their people they cannot even speak to someone in other organizations. Does that show a knowledge of the way to peace? Or does that create friction and annoyance and frustration, especially when they take it so far as to say you can't even speak to your own relatives on the telephone? Even your own children in some cases. I know that's an extreme, but it's being done. And yet they're saying, peace, peace, if you're here. And they're doing the things that do not produce peace. So God says it's a thing of nothing, and it's a deceit of their own heart. Not going to happen under those conditions. Let's go one more on that thought, Romans 3. Romans 3. Verse 17. 
Well, let's start in verse 12. They are all gone out of the way, out of the way of God, into a different way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Now, this is speaking in context, basically, of the Jews. Uh, but we're spiritual Jews, and we are just as capable of doing these things as spiritual Jews as those physical Jews were. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of snakes is under their lips. So easy for the human mind, human tongue, to be full of poison. And poison does what? It makes sick. It makes hurt. It makes frustration. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and miseries are in their way. And the way of peace have they not known. So he says the Jews of old did not know the way to peace. Now they worship God through Moses. But Christ said you worship you know not what, speaking to them directly. They thought they worshiped God in heaven through Moses. But he said, no, you actually worship the devil. Because you're doing the things that the devil does. And there was never peace in that Jewish nation. There is not peace in the Jewish nation today, nor is there peace in the spiritual Jews of God's calling today. Frustratingly so, but that's the way it is. Now, in this world, we're on the brink of World War III. Some are calling it World War IV, counting the Cold War as a war. But we're, I say on the brink, we're already in the, the World War. The world war to this point is being fought over finances and money. It's being fought in the trying to control natural resources and oil. The battles are already going on. They break out into guns and bombs here and there occasionally so far. But that war for supremacy and control of everything that every nation wants is going on right now today. There are battles shaping up behind the scenes on water, on food, on oil, on most anything you want to name that is a natural resource in this earth that is diminishing and depleting. And we have drought worldwide. Sixty percent of America today is in drought. Do you think peace is just around the corner? They keep talking about the peace process. When did we lose world peace? And what world war are we really in anyway? Peace disappeared in the Garden of Eden. That was the first world war. It involved two people. They were the only two on earth, and they were warring and fighting among themselves. So that, more truly, was the first world war than any world war that has ever been fought. Because the whole world that day was at war. And it had been egged on by Satan who played on their nature as human beings, the lower side of that nature, and caused them to begin to fight with one another and pass blame one to another for the trouble that had occurred in that garden. So in reality, we're still in the First World War. Because from the time Adam and Eve did that, mankind has been at war ever since. It has never eased up. It has come and gone to some degree in terms of 
how many nations might be fighting at one moment, but there's been war going on ever since. Uh, Cain and Abel carried on the tradition, uh, Cain killing Abel, and you know the rest of the story, I won't go through all that. In our generation, they've separated out World War I, World War II, and now in the beginnings of World War III as separate entities. You know, we, we think of ourselves in this generation, we don't think of history in that sense. But there are still people alive today who fought in what we call the First World War. And some of those people are going to live to see World War III as we are on the verges of it today. And if it has not already indeed started, it just hasn't escalated into a hot war around the world as yet. So we're already there. But we have what we call the peace process. They call it the Middle East peace process. What is it producing? Peace in the Middle East? No. Your televisions right now are showing pictures of bombs blowing up people and dead children for you to look at in the Middle East today. That's what happened to the Middle East peace process. What about the Oslo Accords? What about all the treaties for peace that have been made? All kinds of them. Financial treaties, oil treaties, war treaties, you name it. We have what we call a peace process. And they keep processing and processing, but they never come up with any peace, do they? Maybe they will quit shooting at each other once in a while, and then they have a war of words, and they go back to shooting each other again. Never stops, never ends. That's the world we live in today. And how bad would it get? Just how bad? Christ made it very clear that if he did not intervene at some point, there would be no flesh saved alive. So when Jeremiah and Isaiah say they don't know the way to peace, they're not talking through their hat. They know exactly what they're trying to say. Mankind simply doesn't know how to make peace. How about us? Do we have constant peace within ourselves, within our families, within our communities, within the church, within the nation? No. We still have warring and fighting, don't we? Well, maybe we need to examine this a little bit because God says, blessed are the peacemakers. And James echoed it by saying that we have to make peace. Now, if you've never been in a kitchen and don't know anything about cooking, and somebody tells you, go in the kitchen and make bread. You've never made bread. You've never watched anyone make bread. And you've really never watched anyone make peace. Now, how are you going to make bread? And how's it going to turn out? About the same way the world's peace process is turning out. Kind of flat. Tastes a little off. Because you don't know anything about making bread. The world doesn't know anything about making peace. And apparently, neither does the church. Peace is a very elusive thing. It doesn't come easily by any means. What is the peace process that would actually work? Let's examine that today because I don't think there's anyone here that would not like peace. And the security that comes with that. 
I want to go back to Matthew 5 for a moment and review something that I've said before in this series of sermons. Because there is a, an order here uh, that leads to peace. It is a process. The world has that right. They have a peace process, but they don't know how to go about it. Chapter 5, verse 2, He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we start reading here in verse 3, and we come down to verse 9, and it talks about making peace. But let's not overlook that this is written in a particular order for a particular reason. Maybe a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you have to start coming to have the attitudes beginning in verse 3 before you understand the peace process in order to make peace as outlined in verse 9. The first step toward fulfilling verse 9 is to recognize your own spiritual poverty. You must do that if you ever hope to find peace. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. They mourn because they are not spiritually what they ought to be. Now, if you are not spiritually what you ought to be, I can guarantee you, you will never find peace. And this world is not spiritually what it ought to be, and it will never, in this age, find peace. We would ultimately kill every man, woman, and child on this earth in the name of producing peace. Then peace would come, however, when all human beings, every last one, were dead, the earth would be a peaceful place. That is not, however, how I want to come to have peace. Peace of mind. Peace of the spirit and emotion. Yes, death will do it, but, you know, the cure is worse than the cause. We're all dead. We don't enjoy the peace that we have. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, a build-up toward making peace, then, is becoming meek, becoming humble. Putting others ahead of ourselves. Others' feelings, others' needs, others' desires ahead of ourselves. There is not much meekness in the earth today, is there? Each nation is selfish. Each nation wants what it wants for itself. It wants wealth. It wants the style of life that it either desires or has come accustomed to having. And they're willing to kill anybody or anything that gets in the way of them having what they want. So vanity and ego are at the root of war. Selfishness is a root cause of war. And when we cannot achieve peace on any level, personal and up, it is because we are lacking in meekness and humility and because we are filled with selfishness, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy. That is what leads to war. It does not lead to peace. If we want to be led to peace, we have to become meek and humble. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We'll see some scriptures before we're done that clearly link righteousness and peace. 
You cannot have peace without righteousness. We live in an unrighteous world, and there is no peace. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. A lot of times mercy is a key part of peace. When we are unmerciful, unforgiving, unrelenting, we are disallowing the feelings of others, and that does not produce peace. Mercy does. Mercy, when shown to you, makes you feel good, makes you feel warm inside, makes you feel accepted, makes you feel relieved and thankful that someone would show some mercy instead of cutting your throat. It leads toward peace. Blessed are the pure in heart. We covered that last week. Those who are holy without fraud. Clean is another word for, hope, for pure. Clean thinking. Well, we don't live in a clean thinking world, do we? We live in a devious world full of lies, full of deceit, full of fraud, full of me first, and I lie, cheat, steal, and kill in order to get what I want. James 4 gives us some insight. We were there, I think, a few sermons back, but I'd like to review it in the light of this particular subject and the light of what has already been said. Chapter 4 follows what we read in verse 18 of chapter 3 about those who make peace. Well, James immediately after he says to make peace addresses the issue of why there isn't peace or the opposite of it, which is war. From whence come wars and fightings among you? What is the cause for a dearth of peace, in other words? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. Now, whether it be your own body that is warring against itself, the arm against the eye, the eye against the brain, or whatever, or war within your family, or war on whatever level it is. He was speaking to the church here, those who were scattered. So it applies to us. It's something that is going on because people have lusts, that is, selfish, carnal desires of their own, and they allow those to override their feelings for others. In other words, the feelings for ourselves and what we want is stronger than our feelings of love and caring for others. You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. We ask, it's in the wrong attitude, it's still a selfish asking. We want what we want. And our prayers tend to be selfish that way too, because that's the way our minds and our emotions work. We pray first and foremost, most of the time, for ourselves. What I want, my deliverance, my health, my blessing, my whatever it is we want, tends to be first in our mind. Now, there's a way to resolve that, but that is the natural way. How did Christ put it? in the sample prayer, which we'll get to in this series. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give me mine today, Lord, but give us. In other words, our thinking is broader than just self. 
even in the terminology that we use. Have you ever noticed that people sometimes will sit and talk about my child? Maybe the husband and wife will be there, but they don't say our children. They say my children. It's just a way of looking at things that puts self as the center of attention and that they're my possession. Now, if you ask them about it, well, aren't they your children? Well, yeah. It's just a manner of speaking. Well, it is a manner of speaking that reveals something about us. Wait till divorce comes, and then it's certainly polarized. These are my children. I want custody. On the other side, the same way. They're not ours anymore. It's all me and mine. And they war and fight over it. And who suffers? The children do. So he says, you lust and you don't have peace, you have fighting and war. So it is a self-centered view that he's talking about. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. He says you don't ask, and then he says, well, you may ask, but you're not asking in the right attitude. Your approach is wrong. That you may consume it upon your own desires, your own selfish approach, so that you can have what you want. So he's saying here, really, that a lack of peace or a state of war is because of internal issues. Me first. I think that's easy for us to see on the world stage. I want the oil. No, I want the oil. You can't have any of it. I think I'll go in the Middle East and I'll just flat take over. Then I'll have the oil. You think there's not going to be an argument over that? Well, the argument is already engaged. It's just a question of how far it goes. And we know there's no question there because people simply will not give up me first. That's just the way the human mind and the influence of Satan work. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? The natural human state is to be envious and jealous because I don't get what I want and you have what I want. That's the root of envy and jealousy. It is the root cause of war. To begin to comprehend the peace process, we need to understand why it is that we can't get along. Somewhere, somehow, some way, there is selfishness involved when there is conflict. It is inescapable. It is the root cause. It may be disguised in many different ways. So James says, get rid of the lust, the vanity, the ego, the selfishness. Those are the causes of strife. We look at the effect, and we don't like it, but maybe we don't know what to do about it. Well, you've got to get at the root cause. You've got to solve the cause. And that is laid out beautifully in the so-called Beatitudes in a progressive order. You've got to have the tools to make peace if you're going to make peace. It doesn't come easy. It has to be made now let's go back to Haggai for a moment. I quote this fairly often, and I think that this is a good time to mention it again. Haggai 2, 
because it is talking about the end-time temple that will be built soon. And it's high time that it's be underway. Speaking of that temple that will be built shortly, and we're not talking about one on the Dome of the Rock uh, in Israel, we're talking about God's church because that is the, the uh, context here of the end-time church under the leadership of the two witnesses. Verse 9, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. <coughs> we're not going to restore the worldwide church of God. We have to go beyond that. It has to be much better by the time it is done than worldwide ever was. We have to get closer to God. We have to live God's way more than we ever did. We have to be more righteous than we ever were. And we have to be more at peace than we ever were. The challenge now is not to rebuild worldwide, but to do something greater than that that will please God instead of causing Him to spew it out of His mouth, which He has recently done. It's got to be greater than the former, says the Eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. Isaiah 54, last verse, says that the righteousness will be His righteousness, not our own. Our own is like filthy rags at the best. But God's righteousness in us will produce peace. Now, Herbert Armstrong had something right there. So there's a way of give and a way of get. Very simple uh, ratio, very simple analogy, but it's very true. If we are giving, serving, loving, we're putting others ahead of ourselves, are they going to fight us? If I'm serving, giving, loving, helping you, are you going to fight me? No. This is true on any level. It's true on any level. We'll see how much it involves even the personal level here in a little bit. So God expects us to come to have peace and to do those things that will produce it. Let's go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And here I want uh, verse 12 particularly. Isaiah 55, verse 12. This is speaking of that time I just quoted in Isaiah 54, the end of this age when God is going to build the latter temple and He's going to have a regeneration of righteousness. He's going to have a fair virgin whom He chooses out of all the branches or virgins of the church of God. And there He will produce Peace. So in that context, Isaiah 55 verse 12 says, For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir, and instead of the briar the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the eternal for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. When God produces the latter temple through the people that He will draw together as His remnant, it will start a peace process that will never, ever end. Because those people will have achieved righteousness through God, and they will have been able to produce peace on this earth that is dead set on producing war that would kill every last one of us. 
That's the process that is going. Now, the whole world is going that way to produce war that will destroy every last man, woman, and child on this earth. We, a few, are supposed to be going the other way to produce a peace that will never end and that will someday consume the earth and be everywhere on the earth. We should be going just the opposite of the world. Now, it's obvious that they don't understand the peace process. They don't know how to get there. We should be able to look around, whether we're old or young, at this world, see the news and realize that even though everyone would like peace and security, they simply don't know how to get there. They don't know what causes peace. They only know how to make war. That's becoming increasingly apparent. Psalm 29. Uh, Psalm 29, here I want verse 11. The Eternal will give strength to His people. The Eternal will bless His people with peace. Now, the rest of the world is headed for war unimaginable. But God will give to His people peace. I want to be one of His people, and I want to enjoy peace and joy that come together. Now, God has that in mind for us, and He says that He will do it. But He has to live His life in us. Because if we live normally, like the rest of the world is, we will never achieve peace, just as they never will on their own. Isaiah 147, verse 14. Well, let's start in verse 12. Praise the Eternal, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Those are code words for the church, as we know. For He has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. Now, it's a promise of peace that we read back in the beginning of the Psalms. Now we're almost at the end of the Psalms. Here he's talking about a time when he's actually done it, because the Psalms are progressive. They go from the depths of despair to God's eventual answers by the end of the Psalms. And there's a lot of up and down in between. We don't have time to review all that today. Maybe someday we'll get to that. But the Psalms are a progressive story, a story flow. And here we're toward the end of that. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He speaks of things that are not as if they already were. He will do this. It will happen. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest of the wheat. So God is going to give us peace within our borders. Now, outside our borders, we're going to have a war, a war, a world at war. But peace within our own borders. He sends forth His commandments upon earth. His word runs very swiftly. So God speaks of peace in the church as if it already existed, and it soon will. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. God is speaking of His power in this chapter and talking to Cyrus about the things that He can do and who He is. He says in verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. Well, God created evil 
primarily by turning Satan loose on the world. He's deceived the whole world, and he is at the root cause of all the war and strife and fighting that's going on, because he came to war against God. What was his attitude? What was the root cause of his rebellion? He looked at himself and says, I'm just as good as God. No one's going to tell me what to do, was Satan's basic approach and attitude. I will do what I want to do. As a matter of fact, I'm tired of that God up there that's telling me how I should live. I'm going to take over. Now, there are many, many people on this earth who have adopted that attitude, and it is a satanic attitude. He's deceived the whole world. And that is at the root of human nature. I will do as I please. It is what each nation is saying today, and the one with the biggest guns is the one that prevails. The United States has prevailed thus far. But there are people out there with bigger guns. And if they aren't bigger guns, they're going to combine them, and then they'll have bigger guns. And the way things are going, I think that our own leaders, if you can call them that, will probably loan them some guns to be sure that this thing gets done. We're in a world filled with treachery, and our own leaders cannot be trusted because they have their own, not our, best interests at heart. And they are going to help bring in the war that will be fought to destroy us. It all started with Satan and his selfish attitude. And it has prevailed ever since. When God let Satan go ahead and rule this world for a short time, you and I see the result of his leadership. There is no peace. We are called upon to turn that around and to make it different. All right. We're faced with a world about to kill itself, destroy itself. The only thing that will stop it is Christ intervening before it actually reaches its conclusion. He said he will bring peace. But he said he will bring peace in the church before he even returns. Now, if he's going to do that... He has to produce it where? In you and in me. That's where it has to come. So we have to be willing to listen to him now when no one else will and cause the peace process that really will work to happen in our lives. That's what we're called on to do. That's what we're here for, is to make peace, to build a peaceful, happy temple. Do you like to go to a church where they war and fight all the time? No. That's what worldwide became. Now, we're called upon to do something different, use a different process, or use the same process that Herbert Armstrong lined out to us, but that we didn't get. How did we not get it? I think I understand that the way of give is better than the way of get. Now, don't, didn't we all get that? Well, we heard it. 
and we understood that that works, but we were not somehow able to put it into our way of living to the point that it actually worked. So there was warring and fighting in the church. And there's warring and fighting in the church today. Now we've got to embrace the peace process, learn what it is, and then find a way to follow it. If we don't find a way to follow it, we'll never have peace. So what does he tell us to do? Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Gives us a clue. Now, there will be some people protected, will be hid from the wars that are going to rage across this earth that indeed already are raging as there is war and rumor of war all around the earth today. There are lots of shooting wars going on. You just don't hear about it all because at the moment you might be hearing of what's happening only in the Middle East or only in Britain with the airplanes or whatever. But there are wars all over this earth. Bad feelings between nations everywhere you go. Zephaniah 2 talks about gathering ourselves, that we're not desirable, that the day of the Lord is about to come upon us. And verse 3 says, Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have worked His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. Now, His anger is going to produce what? Death and destruction. Just, just the opposite of peace. But he is calling upon a few people to be meek and to be righteous, and he will bring peace among those. Haggai 2, verse 9. When he says, I have brought, I have made peace in Psalm 147, he's referring to the latter temple where he will establish a peaceful relationship in the church. We can look around at ourselves and our little squabbles here and there, and we're not there yet, are we? But we can be. We understand the process and do what is necessary. So he tells us that if we have a chance of being hid or being accounted worthy to escape, ultimately, even to a place of safety, we have to be meek, humble, and righteous. And that we're to seek those things. Because that's the kind of people that he can use to make peace. Isn't that what the Beatitudes are about? Seek meekness, understand your lack, be merciful to others, seek righteousness, and ultimately you'll find peace. These are the things that lead to peace. We need to be working on it now. Let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8. And pick it up down here. Uh, well, let's start in verse 1. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. God is not going to condemn anyone who walks after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Living His way, following Him is going to lead us toward all those things which every human being wants but cannot find. Peace, happiness, joy, security, all those things that this world would love to have but can't find. 
For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, we would break the law, and the breaking the law leads to death. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. But He was here as a powerful deterrent to sin. He never gave into it once. He walked in the Spirit all His life, and He showed that that which was weak through the flesh did not have to be. And we're to come to have His mind. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They think fleshly. They don't think of spiritual things, but just that which pleases the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally mind or minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We have a world today that apparently is carnally minded. It thinks of the things of the flesh and what it desires for itself. And it doesn't care what it does to someone else to get what it wants. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a dog-shoot-dog world. It's a I want mine and I don't care about you. That's the world we're living in. That is carnal-mindedness. To be spiritually minded, we think of others ahead of self. To esteem others higher than ourselves, as Paul put it. That is not easy to come by. When you're in a conversation with a bunch of people, you're usually thinking of how what is being said might affect you. Whether it's something that makes you happy or not. Something that offends you or not. And you're probably, in most cases, unless you're thinking in the Spirit, not thinking of how it is affecting others, or what you say is affecting others, because we're quick to offend, and we're also quick to take offense. Are we not? Because deep down, we generally put ourselves first. If somebody says something we don't like, then we don't like them. Just the way human beings are. doesn't make it right. What does it produce? The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then those that are in the flesh, or walking in the flesh, cannot please God. You cannot please God, and He will not give you life and peace. We have to walk in the way of the Spirit. That's what produces peace. That's what it says right here. To be spiritually minded is life everlasting and peace. Uh, chapter 14 of Romans. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It isn't these fleshly things that the kingdom of God is about. Now, we are human, and we need to eat, we need to drink, we need to be careful not to offend others, because that's what this is talking about, and putting a stumbling block before others. In other words, thinking of them ahead of self. If there's something that bothers someone, maybe we should avoid it, because if we offend them, 
And they miss out on the kingdom of God because we are not considerate of their feelings and needs and desires, then they might not be in the kingdom of God. Now, there comes a point where you do obey God, no matter if they take offense. The whole world will take offense someday if we want to keep the Sabbath on the correct day. We do it anyway. There are times when leaders of Worldwide Church of God would be in certain societies overseas and would even eat shrimp and crab and lobsters and squid and pig in order not to offend their hosts. Wrong approach. You obey God when He says, do not eat this, do not touch this, do not say this, You obey men and do what men want only so long as it does not conflict with God's Word. makes it very clear in Acts 5.29, we obey God rather than man. You see, the church came to the point it wanted to be friends with the world, and I just skipped over that in James where it says you cannot be friends with the world. We wanted to be in the good favor of world leaders. So we would sometimes break God's law in order to make peace with man. That was one thing God was not happy with. And it did not lead to peace in the church. So we must put God first, even in matters of meat and drink. But he's talking here in this chapter about things that God made that we could eat, You know, there's a difference between vegetarianism and eating meat and between eating that which is clean and not clean. And Haggai makes it very clear as one of the things, one of the few things that he mentions that the ministry must do at this end time, and that is make a difference between the clean and the unclean. That which should be and that which should not be. Not just in meat, that's only one small example, but in everything. But he says here, for food, or for the fact that somebody, somebody might come in as a vegetarian. And that might offend them deeply, if you eat meat. Paul said he wouldn't eat meat from now to the end of his life, or the kingdom of God came, if it would offend a weak brother. How many of us are willing to go that far? Most of us would just say, ah, that's their problem. The Bible clearly says I have to eat meat, I'll eat meat. I don't care what they think. They just need to get used to it. You know, we find all kinds of reasonings and justifications for not putting their feelings first, don't we? We just tend to be that way. And that does not produce peace. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. If we are seeking the kingdom of God, and we're coming to the point that we should be drawing near to the kingdom of God, we should be producing righteousness and peace and joy through the Spirit of God. That's the direction we should be going. Not that we've completely accomplished it, but that's where we should be headed. All right, let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. 
we're very familiar with this chapter. It talks about the work of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lawlessness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, strife, envy, and so on, wrath, sedition, heresy, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Those are the works of the flesh. But then we have the fruit of the Spirit. It says those that produce the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Now, if we are being led by the Spirit of God, and we're walking in the Spirit, we should increasingly be coming to have love, that's outgoing concern, Maybe there's an order in which this was written because love is said in 1 Corinthians 13 to be the most important thing. What is that? Outgoing concern for others, not selfish thinking, which leads to war. And that love produces joy and peace and patience. If we're not full of love, we haven't come to have joy, we not, are not at peace, and we're impatient, then we have need of the Spirit of God. We're not walking in the Spirit, but in the flesh, and we're producing the things of the flesh. Now, none of us walks entirely by the Spirit, do we? Because none of us have achieved these things completely. But hopefully we're headed in that direction. Hopefully we can begin to really understand the process that produces the things we'd like to have. That is, the things of the Spirit that we'd like to have. Now, it's, it's easy to understand wanting some of the things of the flesh. That's why we have the tendency to go that way. Adultery, fornication, lying, drunkenness, all of those things that are listed here are things that the flesh normally will go to because they can be fun. But in the long run, they don't produce peace and happiness and joy because they are against the way God made human beings to function and operate. So while... Sin can produce fun for a little while. It ultimately produces hatred, jealousy, animosity, envy, and war. Conflict. That's the direction it will take you, even though it seems fun at the moment. The temporary pleasures of sin lead to shame, confusion, frustration, addiction, and all those negative things that we don't like. Let's see, I'll go Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. Maybe one of the reasons I like Isaiah so much is not just the way he turns a phrase, but, but he is so much into peaceful living. It says an awful lot about it. We don't have time to go to all of it, but here I want verse 32, or chapter 32, verse 17. The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So, why can't the world find peace and instead they war? They don't understand righteousness. And they're not living righteously. They lie, steal, cheat, hurt, murder. Doesn't produce peace. 
Righteousness will. So the cause of peace is righteousness. Peace is the effect of righteousness. So if we do not have peace among ourselves or in the world, it's because we're not righteous. It's that simple. Now, maybe we've achieved a degree of peace, but that's because we have only achieved a degree of righteousness. If we're going to have complete peace, we have to have complete righteousness. There is a working relationship there. Let's go to Romans 7 again. I said we'd boil this down to even a personal situation. Romans 7. He's talking about the law here. And he says, all arguments aside, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. I won't go into all of the dissertation on that. I want to make a particular point. Was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin works death in me by that, by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, by nature, am carnal, sold under sin. So the law defines true spirituality. But we, by nature, do not want to follow the law. Why? Why do you and I resist the law of God? We do, don't we? We get in certain situations, we tend to lie. We get in certain situations, we tend to cheat or steal. And cheating and stealing can be not giving your employer a full day's work. Because you're stealing from his profit line. By being lazy, by sloughing off, by not doing quality work or whatever. You see, we put self first. If I'm feeling a little lazy today, I won't put in a full day's work for my employer. If I think I can cheat a little bit here and there and gain for self, I do it. See, that's just the way the human mind works. I'm carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. You see, we're in a different situation than the rest of the world. With them, if they've not been properly educated, there is no morality anymore. It's an amorality or a lack of morality. They just do what feels good. They do what would make them feel good. And they don't care what it does to someone else. They don't care if it upsets their parents. They don't care if it upsets their relatives. They don't care if it upsets their schoolmates. They don't care. They just want what they want. That is the normal, carnal way people live. Now, you and I have come to see that there is a better way to live. It's just getting it done that's hard. You see, when we were school kids, what did we do? We told little stories on each other. We tattletailed. We were envious and jealous. We put each other down. It's in a very raw form in the first to the twelfth grade or kindergarten 
or actually just as soon as you hit air. Because you've been very comfortable in the womb, just sort of floating there in the liquid. Had air piped to you. Mommy would rub her tummy or daddy would rub mommy's tummy and say, it's okay, I love you, come see me. Or whatever was said. And you were in a comfort level. And the minute somebody squeezes you down into a very small channel and thrusts you out into a world full of lights and cameras in action, increasingly in this day and age, they make a spectacle of it, and you feel a different temperature, and you hear voices loudly, suddenly you begin to wail and cry and carry on. Because your little world has been disturbed. I mean, it starts from your very first breath. The selfishness that is innate in us. So there is a law or a war going on. Now, we've learned that there's a better way. Paul knew there was a better way. But he said, still, even though he was an evangelist, an apostle at that point even, and had been for many years by the time Romans was written, he still couldn't seem to do the things he needed to, and the things he didn't want to do, he wound up doing. Had trouble controlling his mind and his hands. Verse 16, If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, I have decided I'm going to live different. I'm not going to commit fornication. I'm not going to drink too much. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to do any of these things that the world is doing. I know that's wrong. Whatever it might be. So it isn't by consent anymore. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. That which has been in me since my first breath is still fighting. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. There's nothing good about human nature. The natural human man has nothing good in him. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. As a carnal human being, he says, there is no good in me. Have we grasped that yet? That of ourselves, we are nothing. Worthless. Mr. Armstrong used to describe repentance as coming to realize you are a burned out hunk of junk, worthless and no good for any purpose. That is what we have to come to see and should have before we're even baptized. But in my flesh there is dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but to how to perform that which is good I find not. <clears throat> For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that does do it, but sin that dwells or remains in me. It's this human nature that is still there that's doing it. I find in a law that when I would do good, 
Evil is present with me. Sometimes I desire to pray. Do you ever do that? You want to pray, and you start praying, and what happens to your mind? It wanders off somewhere else. It wanders on to physical, human things that have nothing to do with God but self. So you might want to pray. You might want to pray fervently. And then you find your mind wandering off somewhere else. Going out of control. So when you would want to do good, evil is present. Pride delight in the law of God after the inward man, God's Spirit in me and the knowledge of His truth, makes me realize I need to do right and I want to do that and I'd like to be what I should be. But it doesn't work that easy. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He's talking about the members of his body, his feet, his hands, his mouth, his nose, all the parts of his body that have inclinations, let's say. Wrong desires, the want to do the wrong thing. The hand might want to reach out and steal. The mouth might want to eat something it shouldn't eat. You know, the, the different parts of the body want physical, fleshly gratification. And he finds a war going on because the Spirit of God is implanted in the mind and the mind is saying, be righteous, be honest, be true, be faithful, be loving, be giving. The Spirit of God in the mind is telling us that as we read it in the Scripture. But the eye wants to look at things it shouldn't look at. The hand wants to touch things it should not touch. The mouth wants to taste things it should not taste. So there's a war going on there to have mind over matter, to have spirit over flesh. He comes to a conclusion, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So Paul found that he did not have peace in his mind, even as an apostle, he still had war. Until we are able to come to the point that we are motivated by the Spirit of God to love, mercy, peace, happiness, meekness, and humility, there will be war going on. Christ gives some examples later on in the so-called Sermon on the Mount, once we get past verses 10 and 11, he begins to explain. So I won't go there now. So far we are seeing a progression here of things that will lead to peace. And then when we have peace, <laughs> we turn another corner and we'll see trouble coming from a different direction. But we're touching on the subject here. And he goes on to say, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. In other words, if your eye sees things to lust after that you should not be looking at, you need to cut that part away. Now, that doesn't mean you ought to actually reach in and take your physical eye out, because even without the eye there, a blind man can come up with images in his mind that are wrong images and still see with the mind's eye and remember things that he saw that he should not have looked at. 
If your hand offends you, cut it off. In other words, if there are things that your body wants to do that you know are contrary to the Spirit of God, you have to cut that part away. Don't let it do what it wants to do. But you know, that's difficult, isn't it? So he says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin and death? I have trouble with it. Well, there's only one answer. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So this is a war that goes on in us. And this war will not be won until we no longer have carnal human nature. Then we will have total peace because we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and we will no longer think carnally and fleshly, but we will naturally think of things of the Spirit. We will have natural outgoing love and concern and lack of desire to offend. We won't be selfish anymore and wanting to have for self. That will all be gone. But in the meantime, we're kind of stuck, aren't we? And there's only one way that we can resolve it. Now, James said that in James 4, after he said, Remember, where, where do all these wars and fightings come among you? It's selfishness, vanity, and ego. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to be guided. We don't want to be leaded. <laughs> leaded, where'd I get that? Led. We want to do what we want to do and to think the way we want to think. We don't want to be criticized. We don't want to be corrected. We want to be left alone for the most part to do what we wish to do. But the end of that is sin and death. Now, if you want life and peace, you have to follow the way of righteousness and you have to let the Word of God correct you and guide you. And he says, if you want to get rid of wars and fightings among you in James 4, resist the devil, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. That is the process. If we are going to have peace in this congregation, then we have to draw near to God and away from Satan and the temptations of Satan and do things God's way. We have to put self aside and serve and give to others, think of them first, and we'll begin to have a greater amount of peace. When those who cause trouble are gone, then peace comes. There's a proverb about that. Get rid of the troublemaker and peace arrives. Because trouble is caused by people saying things they don't need to say. And creating friction and division, frustration and strife. Because they can't control their tongue and they want their opinion made known. That does not create peace, it creates division and strife and frustration. So, we have to come to the point that we're willing to keep our mouths shut, to learn to be taught if what we are saying and the attitude we have creates friction and division and problems. It's that simple. And every one of us does it, don't we? 
The perfect man has total control of his time. When we reach perfect spiritual maturity, we will not sin with our tongue. James makes that very clear as well. None of us have total control of our tongue yet. And a lot of times we say things that are hurtful and we don't even know it. It might be a day, a week, a month, two months, six months, or a year later that we find out that something we said hurt somebody pretty deeply and we didn't even have a clue. Because our normal, natural way of thinking does not cause us to think about how what we're saying is affecting someone else. So we do it in one sense innocently, but it's not innocent. We need to be thinking of the other first and esteeming them higher than ourselves. If we do that, we won't say those hurtful things. I have a few more scriptures here, and I don't have time to go to all of them, but Psalm 119.165 says, Great peace have they who love your law. Great peace comes from knowing God's way of living. And that's what the law defines, really, is how we should think of one another. And if we get that thinking straight, we're going to have great peace. Matthew 10, verse 34, Christ made a statement which would be contrary to Protestantism and might even be kind of startling to us when you stop to think about it. He said, I came not to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. He said, your enemies will be those of your own household. And living God's way will create war. Now, interestingly enough, that's a bit of a preview of next week. God willing, I'm alive and giving a sermon then. Where it says that if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Well, it doesn't say that there, but it's, Paul quotes it. But that's essentially what the next thought is. If you go through this peace process, where you come to have peace within yourself, and peace with your brothers in the church, peace with God, you will suddenly find that you have made war with the world. Interesting, isn't it? At that time, when he came to this earth, he did not come to bring peace. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he knew that it would set father against mother and child against parent and so on and so forth as he, as he explains there in Matthew 10. You start living God's way and you suddenly become an enemy to the whole world. If we're not enemies of the world, maybe we're not living God's way enough yet. Because living God's way will automatically produce animosity and hate from this world. And from your own family. We've experienced that, haven't we, on some level? When we first started coming to knowledge of the truth, we started keeping the Sabbath, we might have given up a job, and they said, well, you know, religion's one thing, but that's your paycheck. Or whatever reasoning they used. We don't eat unclean meats anymore. Well, you've had ham in my house all your life. You won't eat ham now? You're better than me? And on and on it goes as we begin to obey God, because it is foreign to them. It's different. And it would mean that they would have to change if they're to be like you, and they don't want to give up their pig in their Saturday football. 
or whatever. So animosity is created. A lot of people ignore that and think that Christ came here to bring peace. No, He didn't. He said, don't you even think I came here to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And you and I have experienced that with our friends and relatives, and very soon we're going to see a physical sword come after all those who would obey God. In the meantime, we're here to achieve a community, a church of peace through God, through righteousness, through meekness, through recognizing our own spiritual lack and having mercy upon others who are in the same boat. That's what we're here to do. Christ is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. He's called the King of Peace in Hebrews 7, 2. I won't turn there for sake of time. He didn't come to bring peace at that time, but He is coming back to bring peace. And you and I are called to be a part of the peacemaking process. We're part of the peace team that will be turned loose on the earth to end war and bring peace, happiness, and security to the entire world. Now, if we are to be cast in that role, and the Bible clearly says we are, then we need to be going through the peace process now and learning how to accomplish it among ourselves. He didn't come to bring peace to the world. He came that we might, through the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, come to have inner peace, peace within ourselves, and peace amongst ourselves. And when we can accomplish that, we will then be prepared to go out and make peace with the rest of the world. But it's hard to do something for millions of people that you've never done for yourself, your family, your congregation. If you don't know how, you can't do it. We have, as a U.S. government right now, people running all over the earth, Middle East, Pakistan, India, Russia, China, wherever. We've got them going everywhere as ambassadors for peace. And we have all those other countries sending ambassadors for peace to our country. And we go deeper and deeper into war. This war, which has now started, will not end except in total death to every man, woman, and child unless Christ cuts it short, which He's promised to do. And we, the few, have been called to learn to have peace among ourselves so that when the time is right and Christ comes actually to bring peace to the world, you and I can be a part of the peace process. We must learn to make peace.